Welcome to Soul Talk, soulful conversations exploring who you are, why you're here, and how to live your most authentic life. My name is Coop Blackson, nationally best-selling author of You Are The One, transformational teacher, and your host. I invite you to subscribe to the Soul Talk podcast for weekly inspiration from me, where I will share with you some powerful ideas, thoughts, and practical life wisdom to help you live life more fully, freeing yourself from your past, reclaiming your power, and living your true life's purpose. You can also go to www.coopblackson.com, enter your name and email to download my free two-part video training series and learn the ultimate secrets to happiness and fulfillment. Let's get started with Soul Talk. Welcome back, folks, to another very special episode of the Soul Talk podcast. I've been really looking forward to today's episode. Uh, My guest today wrote an amazing book that I read a few years ago, The Top Five Regrets of the Dying. It's an international bestseller. If you haven't read it, check it out. It's uh, pretty life-changing. I think it will touch your soul in a very deep way. Ronnie, where welcome to Soul Talk. Thank you. Thank you, Kud. It's lovely to be here. It's really, really great to have you on and been looking forward to it tremendously. Um, first, I just would love to start. I, I have so many questions I, I want to kind of explore with you and so many themes, but I would love to just begin to give people a context of what led to writing the book and um, what inspired the book, uh, was was there a moment? Was there an event? Was there a particular conversation? I know that you worked with those that were sort of death and dying, and wrote an article. Was there more? Was there like what? What led up to it? What, what was the inspiration? Um, yeah, well, I was keeping a journal through the eight years that I was by the bedsides of dying people, but most of that journal was just for my own sanity and my own healing, and. Um, so I had no idea when I was writing the book that, uh, writing my journal, that it would become a book. And I did have a couple of instances where patients said to me, make sure you share this on, on my mistakes onwards so that other people can learn from them. Like, like I, I had one man sobbing saying, please make sure you pass it onwards. And, mm. and I, at the time I was trying to get going as a singer songwriter and had no idea I'd be called to the author's path which suits me much better. Um, And so I just figured, oh, well, I'll write a song about it at some stage. But but still I didn't see this work. I I had never imagined it would overlap with my creative work. And then... um, Then when I finished working with Dying People, I set up a songwriting program in a women's jail and a music magazine asked me to write an article about my experience there of teaching songwriting inside. And so I did that and with a pen and paper. And when I finished, I thought, why aren't I writing more? I I love writing. I'll start a blog. And so the second, so then I didn't know what to write about. I even Googled good blog (laughs) topics and this is in 2009. And then I just got very clear guidance from within, write what you know. And I thought, okay, well, I've just finished working with dying people for all these years and their regrets have changed me completely. I'll write about the regrets of the dying. And then that took off. That that, um, Mm. article went crazy viral, not not immediately, like about six months after I released it. And then, um, yeah, so from that it was obvious that I'd struck a chord and, found a niche that I didn't even know existed and 
And so I was um, an agent assigned me to write a book because I said, look, the only way I can tell the book, uh, tell the story is through how it's changed my own life. And so mm. I wrote, wrote the memoir, but that was then rejected by 25 publishers and 25. I was able to get out of, yeah, I, I was able to get out of that contract and so I released it independently. And then mm. in the same, so four months later um, after I'd, I'd uh, released it independently, at the, in the same 24 hours as I became a mother at 45, um, I was offered an international publishing deal with Hay House and the book's since gone on to um, be read by over a million people in 32 languages with movie in the pipeline. So oh we don't know the seeds we plant and, and mm. when they're actually going to bloom. Yeah. What inspired you to work with the death and dying in the first place? That's... Tell us a bit about oh, that. Yeah, so I was working in banking. I'd had a career in, in the banking industry and I was just so sick of having to try and sell products to people when I really loved the customer service aspect of it, but I, the banking was changing a lot. And if someone just came in to bank their, their pay, as you know, in those days some people were still paid in cash and they'd come in to bank their pay and I would have to try and sell them superannuation or insurance or something and I just hated it and so I just started looking for a job with heart and the main things were that I the requirements I was looking for was that no high heels no no corporate uniform no makeup and that I could work from the heart I could be myself and yeah, yeah and so I'd, I'd lived overseas for a few years and I'd worked as a companion for an elderly mm. lady there and so I thought oh well I'll I'll do care work again but it turns out that the first live-in position I accepted, she was actually um, pa palliative and we didn't know that at the time. The family didn't know. They knew she was sick but not that she was dying. And so once I looked after her right through to her end, um, to her passing, then the agency I was working with just said, you handled it really well. Do you want more, more work in palliative care? And I, I just trusted that I wouldn't have been brought to this field if I wasn't capable of, you know, serving it well. So I said, yes, but I don't want to live in anymore. And so, yeah, that, that began eight years um, sitting by the wow. bedsides of dying people and with no qualifications whatsoever. And, uh, and wow. yeah, I, I, think, I think it was just, just a calling. Yeah. Mm. I think so often we are, as human beings, afraid of death. And so I'm curious what your relationship with death is was before going into that and maybe how it shifted and evolved. And another piece of that question is uh, for those that may be listening that might fear death, um, the, the topic of death makes them nervous. Uh, is there anything you could speak to to, sure. to, to give us a, a, maybe a deeper understanding of how to navigate that so yeah. that we're, we're not as in, we're not as afraid of it, you know? Sure. Okay. So my understanding of death at the time, I'd grown up on a farm, so I'd seen a lot of dead animals, um, whether that was when we did a kill, um, you know, all the farmers would get a butcher out and they'd, they'd kill off a couple of cattle or sheep and cut it all up. And, I mean, that, that sent me to vegetarianism as soon as I was <laughs> old enough. Um but I also saw like a lot of lambs born that didn't make it and, you know, help pull calves out of cows and stuff like that. So I was aware of death, but I lived how most people in Western cultures live, and that is 
don't think about it. Just get on with yeah. life and, and don't think about it. And so that first patient, when she died, that was my first experience of being of seeing a dead body. And I was wow. there to be with her. And and so it was it was sort of a pretty big um introduction to death. And but I had such a strong faith in, in life and and that I had more to give than than just working in a bank. And so I just stayed with it. And what it taught me over the years was how detrimental it is to not face death and to not speak about it. But I also had instances, there was one in particular that where my lady had been, my patient had been in a coma for over 24 hours. I'd gone home. She was in a coma when I went home at eight o'clock at night. I came back in at eight o'clock the next morning. She was in a coma, all her and it often happens um, when the body's closing down, like all her extremities were cold, like her hands and her feet were really yeah. cold. So she was closing down and she hadn't had responded for well over 24 hours to her family or myself. And she just opened her eyes and stared at this spot in this, on the ceiling, sort of on the corner of the ceiling and the wall, with the most beautiful, joyful smile of recognition. Mm. And it was a smile of recognition, like, like, oh my gosh, there you are, you know. And and it was just so open and full of joy that I knew then we there's somewhere we go to or somewhere we where we return to. And I'd always had faith in in an afterlife as such, but for me, just seeing the joy of it, wow. uh, it just made me completely let go of any fear around death because. Mm. I, I've seen smooth transitions like physical deaths. I've seen really rough mm-hmm. physical deaths where the spirit, you know, doesn't extract very quickly. But I've seen others where you don't even know the person's died. It's been that gentle. And so mm-hmm. I think besides the actual moment of death, there's only beauty to to return to, to, to look forward to. So for me, that's given me a lot of courage. But mm-hmm. what I say to people who are, are battling with being able to face death is let it be a positive thing. Like we're all going to die. You're going to die. Yes, I'm going to die. Yes. Like there's, there's none of us get out of this alive. And so the fact, like it's, it's a well-known truth. You are going to die. So if you're mm. going to die and you can't get out of it, why not remember that, that you're going to die? Because that will then help you realize how sacred your time on earth is. And mm. that then gives you more courage to live a life true to yourself rather than the life other people are living, expecting of you. And so I have found more and more that, that the more I face the fact that I'm on limited time and every single day I get up is one day less of my life, it has just set me free because I use death as a tool for living because yes. I can see, okay, yeah, I could do this, but I'm going to be wasting my precious life. And it doesn't mean every day I'm bouncing and I'm out there grabbing it by the horns, you know, but I'm I'm certainly very present in my life now instead of only always striving for future things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Beautiful. In terms of the, the, the fear we often face when, let's say, we have a vision or we have a dream or there's something we want to do, and we don't do it out of this fear hijacking us. Um, how have you navigated fear? Uh, how have you dealt with fear? And how can those listening in move through fear in such a way that they don't allow the fear to stop them from 
living, as you're saying, living the life, living authentically, living true, following their dreams and instead of wasting time? Mm. Well, I do it with compassion and patience and, gent- and self-kindness. I, I do it with compassion for myself to think, okay, you're, you're scared here, but is it really mm. you who is scared here or is it just a product of your environment? Is it like the little child who you were who learned that you're not good in that area? Like just let, get, let that go, you know, you, you had no say, you were a kid. And, and so I, I have a lot of compassion for any fears that come up, for myself, for any fears mm-hmm. that come up because I think, okay, well, this is just part of being human. I mean, fear is, is put into us to keep us alive and well. But I just look at the fear and I think, is this fear because I've got some old belief system here that's stopping me believing in myself? Or is it fear because it's an actual wake-up call to say, "I don't. Uh, this is not a good move." Like, and just learning to tune in and trust that intuition and find out which, which it is. And and if it's just a genuine fear of moving forward, then what I do is I think, okay, that's fine. You've always got choice. But if you don't at least give this a go, are you going to regret it? And I've seen, I've witnessed the pain of an anguish of regret repeatedly and I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy like it's it's heartbreaking to see the anguish of regret at the end of life when you're too sick and frail to be able to make any changes so I ask myself okay you don't have to do this but if you don't at least give it a go are Mm. you going to regret it and if I'm going to regret it and then it's like, okay, well, I've at least got to give it a go. And if it doesn't work out, at least I can be at peace to think, well, at least I gave it a go. Mm. God. Tell me about the, 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 especially for those that haven't read the book, can you just break down the main regrets that you saw people have? I know you, you talk about it in your book. Can you give us a quick uh, overview? A breakdown yeah, of the, yeah, the, sure. The, well, the, I mean, the, the, book- five, the five regrets. Yeah, well, I mean, the book covers all the stories behind that and goes into much more detail. But the most common regret I heard was people wishing that they'd lived a life true to themselves, not a life that others expected of them. And that was really common, unfortunately. Uh, Another was wishing they hadn't worked so hard. So people realising that their whole identity had been caught up in their work and when their work was taken from them, they didn't even know who they were or where their, their joy could lie. Uh, another was wishing that they had had the courage to express their feelings. Um, that sort of came from different angles, like it came from people wishing that they'd had the courage to tell loved ones that they loved them and that they were proud of them, people who just didn't have those communication channels open. But it also came from other, like self-protection, where people wish they'd spoken up for themselves and uh, and been more been more courageous in their own own expression and uh, yeah, so there were a few different angles, a couple of different angles there. And then people wishing that they'd stayed in touch with their friends because towards the end of life, the family's often already grieving once they know their dying person's, their, their loved one is dying and friends just bring in a different dynamic to a dying person's last weeks and it wasn't always possible to reach out and find those friends that the person felt they really wanted to see and that that was the person they needed in that moment and yeah so that was that was quite heartbreaking as well all of them were heartbreaking and um the other people wishing that they'd let themselves be happier to realize that they had lived their lives according to other people's opinions and 
built their own self-worth or lack of self-worth around those opinions that other people had dumped upon them mm. when in actual fact they actually had a choice in every moment. And what I came to learn was that it's not about being happy every moment. That's not the human experience and it's not being realistic. We have to release stuff. But it's actually saying, okay, how long do I want to stay stuck in this? I'm in a really hard place, but I can focus on the birds singing out my window today or, you know, this is a really hard place and I'm scared and I don't know how to move forward, but my dog will, you know, I've, I've got a dog to pat or I've got food to eat or if I died, somebody would notice that I died. You know, and there's people in the world who would die and, and they're so lonely that no one yeah. would notice that they've died. And yeah. so it's just about shifting the perspective and saying, Okay, I may not be particularly happy right now, but I'm going. I'm not going to let this overwhelm me. I'm going to focus on something that's going to leave me feeling better. Yeah, mm-hmm. beautiful, powerful. I think all of those uh, really, really insightful regrets that we can. I, I guess we don't have to wait to the end of our lives. Hearing this, we don't have to wait to the end of our lives to really reflect on this and make changes, which is, which is the benefit of of hearing what you're saying. And I think for me was the power of your book. Um, in terms of, curious to hear your thoughts on this. Let's say someone has a dream and they're like, Ronnie, I want to travel the world and go to 50 countries. But let's say they have kids and a wife and responsibility and a job and maybe employees even. And, and so I think the question is, how, how does one balance following one's soul, following one's truth, following one's internal guidance to live with no regrets and balance some responsibility uh, to those around us? Does that make sense? Yeah, I, mean, yeah, I think it's... Where, where, is think... That, where is that line? Where is that line? And, and, and I just want to throw something in there as, as another piece of the question. Um, how, actually, let, 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 let's, let's go into that question first. Where is that line in terms of the balance, the responsibility, and just following one's, one's soul, one's, one's guidance? Well, you know, I think every parent would love to just jump, you know, and be free at some stage and do some traveling that they can't do or, or just to do have a a return to some old sense of self that they can't do, but but we've made our choices. And it comes down to gratitude and presence in terms of being grateful for where you're at now and realising, okay, I can't go travelling, I can't do 50 countries now, mm. but I can be as present as possible and grateful that I am needed in this way and that I am making someone else's life better at this time in my life. But then it's also about doing things one step at a time. Like like most mm. kids are going to grow up or that family and those responsibilities are going to ease at some point. And so if you can at least just say to your partner, and I mean if, if you really want a successful relationship, it has to be an honest one. Yes. And so just say to your partner sometimes, look, I just would really love, a weekend away camping or I know I can't fly to Europe right mm. now but you know sometimes I just want a taste of my old self I just want to go somewhere and do that but I don't always want to do it as a family then mm. that couple 
can support each other in that and say, yeah, well, I want you to be happy as, as well. Go and do it. I'll hold the fort for this weekend, but I would also mm-hmm. like to go off and do something sometimes as well. Mm-hmm. And then, then, you know, the more that the individual needs are met, even if it's just like going to a book club once a week or something that is away from the family or playing a sport once a week, something like that where you have a sense of individual self rather than the, the family unit, then that is helping meet your needs. And if you can keep doing those and honour those one step at a time, then mm. over time your kids are going to grow up. They're not going to be as interested in you as they are in their mates. And you're going to find more and more time is returned to you. And so then you actually expand on those areas and think, yeah, okay, I think I could probably go away now for four or five days um, or there's a network of teenage friends, parents who could take the kids right now and I could go away with my partner for a few days. There's always ways if you dare to take one step at a time, but that's where people sort of write it off and say, no, it's, mm-hmm. it's too hard, I've got all these responsibilities, but you owe it to yourself. This is your life and you know, I'm, I'm the mum, I, I get it, and and it's it's not always easy to get all of your needs met. In fact, it's quite challenging sometimes. But if you're committed to it, then you're teaching your children as well that self-care is really important and that sometimes adults just have to go and do something as an adult. Yeah. So, so it's not necessarily like, okay, you know, live a life with no regret, just burn my life down. It, it doesn't have to be so radical is what I'm hearing. No, I mean, those big things in life, the big radical things, there's only probably <laughs> a mac- maximum 10 in your life. I mean, most people <laughs> might have two or three or four big times, big events mm. in their life. Life is the little moments. It's the day-to-day stuff. And mm. so rather than just, you know, burn all your bridges and say goodbye to your family and go off and get it out of your system for six months and then come back and realise your family's actually got on fine without you and don't want you back. <laughs> there are ways, which happens. Which does <laughs> happen. Yeah. There are ways to do it just one step at a time and trust that right now this is where your life is at, but it won't, but everything changes and it won't always be like this. And that, that's that's a beautiful awareness, realizing that it's not permanent. That this, the yes. moment isn't permanent. This moment, this momentary experience will will pass. Even that's though it can feel it like it can yeah. feel like it at times, but it will pass. Yeah. Yeah. Let, let, let's say someone um, they've done something, or they haven't done something. But let's just say they've done something, and they really regret it. Um, that regret can weigh so heavily inside of our souls, inside of our spirits, inside of our psyche. And for someone who might be carrying regret that is eating away inside of them, how or what advice can you give on how we can forgive ourselves uh, for, in quotation marks, you know, the mistakes that we judge that we have made in the past. Okay. Well, it, mistakes are how we learn. So it's a part of, a hu- of the human experience to learn by mistakes. So we can't really get out of making mistakes. And it, it really is. I mean, they're the, the lessons you learn the quickest, the ones that, that turn out to be big mistakes. 
But the only difference between, and so you could be making mistakes every single day or say something that upsets someone or whatever, and it might not affect you much at all. You say sorry and you don't carry that on and you keep going. The only difference between a mistake becoming, like all mistakes, all regrets are mistakes, but not all mistakes are regrets. So you can make a mistake and just forgive yourself and get on with it or you can carry the weight of it forever. And what that weight is, is your judgment upon yourself. And that is the only thing that makes a mistake a regret is the fact that you are still beating yourself up over it and you are still judging yourself for being human and making a mistake. So what you do is you look back on your old self who made that mistake. I mean, the fact that you can recognize it as a mistake already means you've, you've grown from that time. So you look back on, on who you were who made that mistake from who you are now and think, yeah, okay, you did make a really big mistake. I wish, I wish it hadn't happened, but it has. Mm-hmm. I'm going to forgive you and I'm going to move forward without carrying this penance and this weight of regret because you did the best as who you were in that moment at that time and that's all you could do. And sure, you know, there's repercussions from what what happened, but this is part of your life. So just forgive yourself and understand that you're stuffed up and you're human, like you're you're just human. And, And you can't do much about it now except forgive yourself and move forward. If someone's if someone's struggling, because I, I, I was having a conversation with a friend the other day and they had done something that they felt was so, I guess, unforgivable. Um, uh, I'm hoping they're listening to this podcast, Bronnie. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and I'm just like... What, what about in that situation? Like they felt they cheated on their wife, you know, and, and, and it was just so, it was just devastating and they just, they're hating themselves. And they know intellectually like, okay, I, it was something that happened. I need to forgive myself, but I just can't. It, okay. Well, maybe have a little bit of compassion for how they were mm-hmm. feeling at the time because obviously they were seeking, mm-hmm. they were seeking some sort of affirmation or confidence somewhere else that they couldn't find in in that relationship and so i think compassion even if it i mean there's i don't believe there's anything that's unforgivable i i grew up with so much cruelty and trauma but mm. i don't believe anything is unforgivable everything mm. is is forgivable forgivable you might as long as you learn from it and think okay why did i do this and what can i do to stop it happening again and just yeah, I, I just don't believe that anything is unforgivable, and and I and I do like I, I'm sure people are sort of disagreeing with me on this. In like, yeah. but, but what about murder? But what about this? Yes. But what about that? And I don't think any cruelty is is welcome or acceptable. But we are such broken, fragile creatures as humans, and we're mm. so disconnected from our own radiance and our own potential and we don't live in enough communities where we're actually helping each other out. We're all very, you know, society's very insular and so of course we're going to get off the track at some stage and 
unfortunately, sometimes that means the cruelest of acts and sometimes it means the tiniest of acts, but something that someone will still carry in regret for the rest of their lives. I just believe that all of us are born with a good and a kind heart and it's our brokenness that brings out the, the worst in us. And for that, there has to be compassion. I love what you said. Um, so simple, but so direct. And it's really sticking with me that nothing is, is, is unforgivable. I think that's, that's just powerful to, to reflect on. Like nothing is, un, is unforgivable. Yeah, I mean, I worked inside jails. I've seen, you know, I've worked with people who were mm. were, were murderers and and other things like that. And I've 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 just seen the most broken people who have mm. had life knock them back again and again and again and again. And they actually find it easier to commit a crime and go back to jail than surviving on the outside. And so I have compassion for those people. I don't like their actions, I, it breaks my heart to think that innocent people are killed. But yeah. but I also see that these people that I taught in the jail, these women, they were just they were just so broken themselves, and they had been born as dear little innocent babes with with hopes mm. and dreams too. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Yeah. One of the re- regrets uh, you talked about was people saying, I wish I'd stayed in touch with friends. And, you know, during this time uh, of recording, we're going through, been going through pandemic, social distancing. Um, a, a lot of people have been feeling isolated during this time. And the feelings that get triggered is a sense of loneliness. And can you speak to that in terms of for someone that might be feeling really lonely during this time, isolated, lonely, either because they've lost a lot of friends uh, during this time, either because they just haven't been able to be around their family and those that are really meaningful to them. Because uh, I think I think many many of us as human beings, we, we, we even if we have a lot of people around us, sometimes we feel that sense of lonely or not understood or I don't yeah. really connect with people. And just just based on what you've seen and your work with people from all walks of life, especially those you know, in palliative care and death and dying, just speak to us. On, yeah, on I, I think, um, you know, we can't always control what's going to happen. And so if you are lonely, you reach out by phone or whatever means you can if you can't see people in in their face to face and that's often the case anyway because of distance and everything else but a phone call and a laugh with a phone call is so Mm. much different to sending a text saying thinking of you or how you're going actually picking up a phone and having a real life conversation can leave you feeling so much better it may not be as great as the hug and seeing someone in real life but actually realizing that the human voice and and that a conversation is so much more um, nurturing for the soul than than a text message to someone saying, oh, "I've been thinking of you" or whatever. So that is something that you can do at this time. The other thing is, you still have to, if whether you're in lockdown wherever you are in the world or not, in most places you still have to go out for essential services. And we are social creatures, whether we're deeply introverted or not. We are. We need each other, and so 
you go out and you smile at a stranger or you have a chat with the person who serves you in the in the grocery shop or mm. you just try and have some sort of interaction and conversation so that you know that, okay, I, that person had one extra smile today because of me or I had one extra smile today because of that good person that sells the newspaper on the corner or whatever. And so it is a really tricky time that we're in and we're all having to navigate it with, without um, knowing which way to go. We just have to trust, uh, trust in ourselves and work our own way through this. But there are always things you can do and that is to reach out for help and reach out to a friend and say, I am so lonely. I'm going crazy. Just tell me mm. something stupid or funny or, you know, just tell me something that will take me out of this space. I think reaching out is, is, is really key in the willingness to be, to be honest and to be authentic and to be vulnerable, uh, yeah. especially just to reach out because sometimes that can be scary as well. Sometimes there's the, we, we have the fear of if I reach out and the need isn't met or I get rejected. And so it also takes a, a level of courage to reach out. Yes, it does. So, yeah. yeah, it does. But are you going to regret not reaching out? So, mm-hmm. you know, you probably and, and, to, and, and to acknowledge that we, we need, right, that, that yes. we do need. Uh, I think sometimes we feel weak for needing, but it's, as you're saying, it's an essential human need to connect. Oh, yeah. It's not a weakness at all. It's a strength to reach out and bring people together. From what you've seen, how much of life do you feel we are in control of? And how much of, <laughs> life, and how much of life do you feel just, I don't want to say it's destined, you know, but, yeah. you know, because we kind of, because, you know, you, you've been the people that are dying and they're at the end of their life. So I'm just like, in your own experience, you know, could, mm. how, how much do we manifest and make our lives happen, will it into being versus... How much is just happening? Uh, Yeah, I have some some strong and changed thoughts on that. I used to... Tell um, me. Well, I used to believe that, you know, we attracted our lessons and that we had the power to change everything. And I have, uh, you know, manifested some incredible things that people would consider miracles that had Mm. no logic behind them at all that were completely just my faith in life that I could do it and, and I've done it and I've got all these great stories or whatever. But lately I've just, so I live with, with a disease and I have mm. done everything I could to heal that disease and I was so blinded by the wellness industry that I didn't get the pharmaceutical help I needed at the time and mm. as a result I can't play my guitar anymore. My fingers are fused and that is heartbreaking to me. I've been living with the disease for 10 years, but wow. I've just, I just feel like what my changed thoughts are, I've, I've, you know, it's, it's a real guilt and shame that's put upon people if mm. they do everything, if they think they've done everything right and it still doesn't show up in their life. And I tend to think we don't have much control at all anymore. What we have control of is our reaction to the situation in any given moment. And that is a really powerful sense of control if you exercise that. So you can be abused, like someone going off their head at you, or you can be crippled with disease, you can be um, going through bankruptcy, whatever. You can be going through some really huge stuff and you can't stop that unfolding in that moment. But what you can control 
is how you're going to approach it and how you're going to do it. And that needs to be with self-kindness and with patience and compassion. Because even if you think you've got every single thing in place, life will still throw you a curveball because life's about learning and growing. And if it was all controllable and all perfectly in place, well, you're not going to learn and grow. You're never going to reach your soul's potential. And life knows that. So you're going to get some unexpected lessons no matter how much you try and control it. So what I have found is that I've, I'm very clear on what my dreams are and I, mm. I do meditations on those and everything else and I have, uh, you know, like a, um, like a little video I made of it and stuff like that. But I don't say, okay, this is where this house on the hill has to be. It's like, okay, I want the feeling of living on a mountaintop um, but I'm going to trust life to show me because in, in my experience, the more I've dared to surrender and not control and just stay as present and grateful as possible, the more life has given me shortcuts and given me exactly what I needed in a form I could never have imagined. Even like becoming an author, I was out there slogging it away, trying to do gigs at 10 o'clock at night in pubs where people were just watching the football or the boxing on TV and I'm playing my beloved songs, no one's See paying attention. Yeah, wow. Yeah. And wow. then life called me to the author's path, which fits me, my, my personality so much better. But I never imagined in a million years that wow. I'd be an author. Instead, when I was trying to get going as a singer or songwriter and then when my blog took off, I thought, okay, maybe I need to surrender here and let go of control a bit. Maybe life's got better surprises in store for me. Mm-hmm. So I feel like it's the feeling of what we want that life is. And mm-hmm. the more we try and control it, the more resistance we have to what is and it's the resistance that causes most of our suffering how much of your life then do you plan right now because it sounds like you're you're really moving into that the the zone of surrender as a way of life and so what about planning because i know some people might be listening Ronnie, how do, how do I plan? How do I plan my goals and strategize yeah. and make a business plan and a roadmap? And, and you know, uh, uh, I can't just, just, do I just wake up and go with whatever the flow is? What does it yeah. look like for you? Well, I think that planning it helps some personality types, but mm. one of the greatest quotes I ever saw, I was sitting in a traffic jam and it was written in a window of an art shop and it said, plans make God laugh. <laughs> and I was just sitting there for ages and looking at it thinking, oh, my goodness, that is so true. Like like we, we spend all our time making all these plans, but life's got so much other good stuff in store for us. Mm. So for me, I don't make plans. What I do consciously is plant seeds. Mm. So I know that, okay, I'm going to do a creation here. It may go really well. It may not, but I'm going to plant the seed because what I've learned is that The seeds don't always bloom as you think and they can bloom at really random times as well. And so Mm. if you just keep planting seeds that make you happy, so in my case, I've just finished writing my first novel. I'd never written a novel before. My publisher tried to convince me not to because I've done so well in nonfiction and and in Mm. spiritual sort of texts. And so, but I wanted to see what I could come up with. So I, you know, I just kept, thinking about that and thinking about it. And then finally I just said, no, I'm actually going to do this for myself because if I don't, I'm going to regret it. 
Now, you know, I have, have someone interested in the book. I have a couple of people interested, which is a really nice position to be in. But there's no guarantee that that book will fund my retirement or whatever. I don't know where the book will go. But what I do know is that my writing has improved hugely by writing that novel. And so all the other seeds that I plant along the way are going to benefit from that anyway. And so I just keep planting seeds of, of ideas I have. I check in like, yeah, I could do that, but is it really going to bring me joy or am I only doing it for money because I, I need some money? And it's like if I'm only doing this to make an extra income, there's nothing wrong with that. But for me personally, I think, yeah, but where's the joy in it? And you're going to miss the days that you spend creating that aren't going to be joy-filled. They'll be purpose-filled and, and, and service-filled, but they may not actually be where my creative expression really wants to bloom. And so I just check in with myself regularly and I don't make very many plans at all because very few have ever have ever come out how I expected them to. So for me personally, I just make sure I plant a lot of seeds, seeds that bring me joy in, in planting them, and then I surrender and I just let life say, all right, remember that thing that you did, that article you wrote five years ago? Well, this person wants to interview you based on, on that article. It's completely different subject. It's like, oh, yeah, and then I do that and then someone hears that and in, invites me to do this really interesting business deal and it's like, okay, I'll go with that. Yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. Like when you wrote the, 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 the blog post uh, about death and dying and lessons that you learned and it went viral, you said six months later, which is interesting. That sounds like you planted the seed and you put it out there and six months later it sprouted. Were you surprised when millions of people started to, to oh, read it? Not really um, because I had it had taken me 14 years to become a, mm. an overnight success. <laughs> so for 14 years I had been trying to get my message out there thinking initially through a photography and inspiration book and that just got rejected for years and then um, and then through my music. So I always felt that my message would reach people. Right. If anything, I just felt relieved because it was like, oh, I can do this from home. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> I don't have to go and lug my, my gear to, to festivals that are five hours away for hardly any money and, and I don't mm -hmm. have to set up camp just to, play for 45 minutes to people or whatever it was just I think I just felt relieved like ah oh, okay let's see where this goes yeah I love it. <laughs> there, was, there was something you said earlier uh, which which caught my attention I'm like did I hear that right you, you said you became a mother at 45 yes yeah tell, intentionally. Tell, tell, tell me about that I'd love to hear yes more. so I had um I'd been married before <laughs> but um, my my husband was an alcoholic like my father and I didn't want to raise a child in that situation. So I had accepted that I wouldn't have a child and just thought that's okay. I, I was a pretty free spirit, everything else. And then I started having, in my early 40s, I started having this dream of, of it happened three times, I think, of this little girl saying, hurry up, I can't wait much longer. And so I started thinking maybe she was in foster care and I looked into foster care and, and I was single at the time and then that didn't happen. So then I started looking into sperm donors and IVF and I thought, no, that's not really fair for 
a child, if I have a choice, you know, to not know who their their biological ancestry, you know, mm. who it comes from. And um, and then I met this this man, and he'd never had children before, and we became mates. And he was going through a bit of a hard time, and I'd just come through a hard time, and so I sort of wrote a, excused a lot of the behaviour, thinking, yeah, mm. that's just where he's at, and. So, yeah, we were together as a couple, became a couple, and we intentionally conceived my daughter the second month we tried. I'd never been ah. pregnant. He'd never had a child. We didn't know if wow. we could. But the second month we tried, so I was 44 at the time. Wow. And then I had a really healthy pregnancy, except that I broke up, the, I, I left the relationship during that time. And um, I just... Once the haze of hormones cleared, I just realized that the excuses I was making out of compassion were actually really detrimental um, to mine and the child's future. So I didn't stop him being her father, but I just knew that I had to um, yeah. do it alone, which was a really massive decision um, when you go into it seeing yourself as a family. And then just seeing these warning signs like life just saying, you, if you don't get out now, you're never going to get out. And, you know, I, I can't go into it any more than that. But, yeah, yeah so I, I was only two weeks off 45 um, when wow. I had my daughter and um, had a beautiful, healthy, gorgeous baby. Unfortunately, that then triggered the disease in me. And so I've been living mm. with chronic pain since then. So three things happened at once. My, my daughter was born, I was offered the international publishing contract and the disease arrived in my life. So mm. it obviously was too much for my body. But yeah. as I've said to my daughter a number of times, if I had to go back and do it all again, I would because she is just such an incredible contribution to the earth. She, she just mm. brings so much light and goodness to the planet and um, and I played my role in, and I still do in guiding her through that. And we have our challenges because of my physical limitations. But at the same mm. time, it's also taught her amazing boundaries and self-kindness and, and things that she wouldn't have grasped as fully mm. had she not witnessed me doing it and being that yeah. way. Yeah. It really sounds, sounds like she, her soul chose you for a reason. Yeah, she wanted she, to come she, through. She yeah. was intent on coming through no matter mm. what. It's like it's happening now. Yes, <laughs> and yeah. So. And when I'm like when you get to know her, you can <clears throat> see that even then, like like now, if she puts her mind to anything, she's just like determined and determined full on. Mm. And um, and so I, I often sort of smile at that thinking, yeah, of course, I had no <laughs> say in it. She was coming whether she liked it, whether I liked it or not, yeah. Mm. So I'm very blessed to to be a mum of, of such a sweet little girl and um, and I never lose sight of that, that some people try for years and can't and I yes. conceived at 44 mm -hmm. the second month I tried. But I also had the courage to try because there were people saying you can't do that. There was even yeah. once I was pregnant, you know, once I was pregnant, there was a doctor saying you're not going ahead with this, are you? It's like, yes, I'm going ahead with this. And, mm -hmm. you know, so I had to have the be grounded enough in myself to actually say, this is what I'm feeling called to do. I'm going to give it a go no matter what. Yeah. The, the courage to try. Yeah, many oh. of us, we don't try. And uh, I think that's part of what leads to, to having so many regrets is that we, yes. we didn't, yeah, we didn't even try. The courage. Yeah. yeah, and if you need courage, well, what you do is face the fact that you're on limited time and you're going to die. So yeah. get on with it. <laughs>
Yeah. How did motherhood change your life did, in terms of the, the beginning stages? And I'm just curious. how that um, It was a bit life. of a shock because I was in chronic pain yeah. as well and it sort of felt mm. like someone had taken to my feet with a hammer, you know, 20 wow. times and then poured bubbling lava through it. You know, it was that sort wow. of level. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was a pretty weird time. <laughs> um, and I just had to let go of my old life completely. I, I, I had no choice as to, to get on with it. But what it taught me is really strong boundaries. About, like I, I used to serve everyone else long before I served myself. And I now have boundaries that are very natural to me. They're not me just being a mean, it's not me being a mean person. It's me being a kind person to myself to say that like so often people will say, I only want 10 minutes of your time. Why can't I? Or they say to my, my team, you know, I only want 10 minutes of her time. Surely she could give me 10 minutes of her time. And it's like, well, that 10 minutes isn't just 10 minutes. That 10 minutes is me scheduling it in, working my day around it, paying my staff to liaise with you you know whatever and I've had some people be really mean as if I owe them something just because they like my work whereas Mm. now I don't have any guilt whatsoever it's like no I have limits Mm. I live within those limits a part of those limits is honoring my own joy so I leave time every afternoon for my quiet time between work and, and motherhood and I have my cup of chai and I, you know, mm-hmm. I chill out on my swing chair and, and I don't overfill my life. And that is what motherhood has taught me, that, mm-hmm. that my daughter was too sensitive for me and I was too sick anyway. But in the early days, she was too sensitive to be one of those kids who got dragged off to a different play date, you know, three or four different play dates in a day. One outing enough was enough for her and one outing a day is enough for me as well. And so, for example, on a Saturday morning in our family, in our circle, everyone knows we don't socialise on a Saturday morning. We don't set a clock. We get up and any plans we make are after 1 o'clock on a Saturday. And that gives both her and I time just to hang out at home, reconnect. Sometimes we'll go off to a farmer's market together, but it'll be a spontaneous thing because we both know that by the time we get to Friday, we, we're both sensitive. We both just want to hang out at home, mm. have the music playing, her doing Lego, me doing whatever. And, and so those sort of boundaries are what motherhood and illness have taught me. And I do it completely without guilt now because I'm not responsible for other people's reactions. I can't spend my life having trying to get people to like me or understand me because they've walked in different shoes to me and I've walked in different shoes to them. So I've just learned to really be free of what other people think of me, which is one of the greatest freedoms ever. Mm-hmm. Um, and But I can still do that in a kind way, that I can show up and I can serve my audience, which is one of my joys, is serving my audience but I'm not obliged to my audience. I'm, yeah, I serve yeah. them out of goodness of my heart and to make a living, but mm. I'm not obliged to, to anyone other than to my well-being and my daughter. Yeah. That's very refreshing. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Uh, Bronnie, I've, I've really loved, loved this time with you and just thank you for making time for the conversation. I have one final question. Uh, it's a simple one because you've shared so much already. Uh, if you were just to reflect on your life and the more I talk to you, the more I can see, wow, you've lived quite a life and many different experiences. And so I'm curious, based on everything you've lived in your life, uh, if you were to think of the three most important life lessons that you 
have learned, uh, some of which you may have shared. But if you, if you were to distill them into the three most important life lessons that you've learned, that if you could only pass these three things on to your kid and the kids of the next generation that you feel would evolve their soul the most, I'm just curious what comes to mind in this moment right now. Okay. Um, I would say that listening is a secret ingredient to mastering a, a successful life. To become a like when you actually become a true listener, you hear things that don't that, that help you so much that other people don't hear. And I think that listening is very, very underrated. So, um, become a good listener and make that a, a test, a challenge to, to become a better listener. Uh, the second is that you are just as worthy of your love and support and kindness as everyone else who you serve, whether that's family or friends or you, you have an audience or whatever, you are as equally worthy of your mm. time as they are. Um, there's no reason why you have to sacrifice just to serve others unless you take joy in doing so, that you actually deserve to, to receive your own love. Um, and the third one I'd say is, just don't take it all too seriously. Mm-hmm. Like life is pretty simple. There's one of my songs, it says life's pretty simple with magic and bliss. The hard bit is remembering this. And mm. I feel that life is pretty simple because I know that when I've been in the flow of it, not trying to control it, I have just been blessed in so many unexpected ways. And so just be, you know, be if you're overthinking it, just be gentle and compassionate with yourself and, just let go. It's okay to have a day off and do nothing and look at birds singing or go for a walk or we don't have to be achieving every day. And it, when you allow yourself that freedom, that's an achievement in itself. Beautiful. Appreciate you sharing those three three key insights. Uh, Ronnie, thank you again uh, for just sharing yourself. I really feel the, the, the sensitivity and the compassion of your spirit through your voice even though we're not in person, but through your voice, it really comes through. And so thank you for writing the book and following your calling. Your book, which I read uh, a few years back while my mother was dying, uh, really inspired me tremendously to, to, to think about life and what's important. So a big thank you yeah. from, me, well, it's been, from, me, it, from me to you. Thank you. Thank you, Kukud. It, it's been a pleasure to chat with you and to see the work that you're also contributing to the world. So thank, thank you, you. For, for coming from a place with so much soul. And I, I really respect you for, for how you show up in the world too. What's the best way people can find out about you and your work? What's the best website? And, yeah, just uh, my main website. I'm, I'm on social media, um, but I'm but bronnyware.com. It's like Bronnie with an R in it. Like, awesome. like Bonnie, like Bonnie with <laughs> and then where W A R E Bronnieware.com. That's that's the mothership. You'll find awesome. find where to go from there. Yeah. Awesome. Folks, you've heard it. Bronnieware.com. We'll put uh, the link in the show notes. Check out her amazing book and check out her work. I know you'll be touched and inspired. Everyone, I told you this was going to be a, a touching and amazing episode. Share this episode with everyone in your life that you feel will benefit. Uh, send me an email, kooplaxon at kooplaxon.com. I'd love to hear your key takeaways from today's episode. Until next week, love now. 
If you've enjoyed this episode of Soul Talk, please do share the podcast with all of your friends. Let everyone know and make sure you download Soul Talk today. I'm looking forward to next week where I'll get to share more inspiration with you. Meanwhile, follow me on Facebook, Instagram, or social media. You can find out more about my work at www.cooplaxon.com. If you feel ready to take your life to the next level, join me at my exclusive event in Bali, www.boundlessblissbali.com, where you can find out more and apply. Also, make sure to remember to download my free two-part video training series and learn the ultimate secrets to happiness and fulfillment at coopblackson.com. Sending you all big hugs and love now.